welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jamie Peck. My name's Jorge. And today we are going to talk about chapter two of State and Revolution. Oh boy. Let's go. So yeah, I guess if you're listening to these in order, then you got a little history in the last episode. That's right. And now you can have some theory for dessert. Yeah, you know, hopefully if you did listen to the episode, you'll know that there is some very important context historically that regarding from you know, pretty much the end of the Napoleonic era in France to around 1815 to 1848, 1851 with, you know, the Second French Empire being established after the end of the Second French Republic with Napoleon III, former Prince Louis Napoleon, as head of the empire. Why was this important? Well... We're going to talk about it now. We're going to talk about why it was important, how all of that influenced Marx and in turn, Lenin. Hell yeah. So before we go any further, I think it'd be helpful to have a little introduction to chapter two. So what is the point of this chapter? You know, if people, if they're like, I don't have time to listen to a whole podcast. Mm -hmm. I just want to know the TLDR of it. Right. Well, it's the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's pretty much it. The purpose of the chapter introduces this concept that people always talk about and, and, and you know, it's often mentioned but seldomly defined, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is extrapolating from what Marx and Engels wrote, considering the logical conclusion of, and, and also considering the logical conclusions of the descriptions. So, to demonstrate the necessity of this, Lenin harkens back to what Marx wrote about the period of time of 1848 to 51. Which you know all about now from listening to our last episode. Right, exactly. And, you know, this experience of that revolution leads to question, questions that, you know, with regards to the role of the state under capitalism, but specifically how we ab- abolished this estate in order to replace it with a worker state. And near the end of this chapter, which we'll get to, concludes with the framing of this, of this question that Marx is trying to resolve after the, this experience that he kind of saw, which is basically to end this recurring theme in history which is class struggle and to end this and class struggle in history we must have as at least as an interim period the dictatorship of the proletariat so we begin with chapter two part one the eve of revolution i gotta say this guy is a very good storyteller he's great he's really good at uh you know, Lenin, this guy this guy Lenin, he's going places he's going places with presenting information He, he he's it's some real gusto, and you know, he, he might know what he's talking about in some point. Some of this, yeah, more and more people are talking about him. Yeah, more and more people. Like it's like it's like Christmas Eve, you know. I'm like so excited. Yeah, no, he, he's really selling this revolution stuff. You know, I, I put uh, I put some Soviet coal in my stocking, which is going to power the factories as we <laughs> rapidly industrialize a formerly feudal economy. Yeah, I mean, like you need to. Develop the productive forces. As a proud supporter of the People's Republic of China, I, I, I agree. Productive forces are important. Yeah. So let's fucking go. Yeah. And, you know, and Lenin begins this, this chapter and this section by pointing out how the first works of mature Marxism, in other words, where Marx begins to move away from merely the deliberate, philosophical deliberations of, of, you know, what happens in, you know, these philosophers like, you know, Picurus, Hegel, all these other kind of thinkers, you know, because, you know, if we remember, or if you don't know, Marx had a 
PhD in philosophy. He studied philosophy in school. He's a fucking nerd. And, you know, kind of move, moving away from that, he was moved into more of a scientific analysis of capitalist society. And this is where two works that were published and, and written in, in 1847. The first one was The Poverty Philosophy, which was written in the first half of 1847. And, you know, the very famous and episodes that Jamie and Aaron had done on uh, The Communist Manifesto which was written a few months later in November of 1847. And some context regarding the poverty philosophy, this was written in response to a, a work titled The P- Philosophy of Poverty by a one anarchist philosopher, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, which we will also, whose works we will read, perhaps maybe not The Philosophy of Poverty, but we will read Proudhon's works. Yeah, I think it's important to, in addition to reading Marx, getting mad at people, and Lenin getting mad at people, it's important to read the people that made them mad. Yeah, what what, what the fuck did you do that got them so mad? We're going to find out. Yeah. So Lenin is keen to point out that given these works were the beginning to a more mature Marx, this is a reflection, quote, to a certain degree of the concrete revolutionary situation of the time, unquote, since these were works were written just right before the revolution of 1848. And, you know, he believes, Lenin, is, that it is imperative to set the foundation of what Marx and Engels believed about the state before what occurred in revolutions of 1848 to 51. So basically kind of what's going to happen was like this chapter is like we're going to see what Marx and Engels thought and believed about the state before, you know, what happened in France in 1848 to 51. Then kind of like their experience, whether, whether you know, digesting what happened during that period of time with like the 18th Brumaire. And also, and in the last section being like, you know, after all that happened, having had some distance from it, what they've learned from it. It's a journey. Yeah, it is a journey. It's interesting. All right. So, you know, this first part, you know, chapter two, part one, the the title, The Evil Revolution. Lenin begins by pointing out how the first works of mature Marxism, in other words, where Marx begins to move away from a merely philosophical deliberation. And, you know, if we, and if we remember, Marx was kind of, was a, you know, had a PhD in philosophy, you know, he was like a, he was a nerd. He studied, he studied, you know, he went on to get more school after he, grad, he graduated from university. And, you know, he, and, you know, he mostly focused on like, you know, people like Epicurus or Hegel, who was the predominant philosopher at the time and moved away from like these abstract kind of conversations and moved into a more scientific analysis of capitalist society. And these first two mature works uh, that Lennon points out are the poverty philosophy, which was written in the first half of 1847. And the Communist Manifesto, who, uh, you know, this work, there was the first three episodes of this podcast with Aaron and Jamie. And they were written in a few months later, that same year, in November of 1847. Now, for some context regarding the the poverty philosophy was written in response to this work by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, The Philosophy of Poverty. Owned. Yeah. And, you know, we, we probably won't go over this this work or, or the Perdon work but we probably we will we will go over it works by Perdon because he is influential in, in the in the history and development of communism gotta gotta give a shout out to our anarchist comrades it's true um and you know Lenin is keen to point out how you know given these works were the beginning of a more mature Marx this is a reflection of sorts of quote to a certain degree of the concrete revolutionary situation of the time unquote since these works were written right before the revolution of 1848. Lenin believes it is imperative to set the foundation of what Marx and Engels believed about the state before they learned from the revolution of 1848 to 51. And it's important to note throughout all of this that we're going to be talking about, 
that the way it, this chapter is set up, the chapters are such, the sections are such that it's the first section is what Marx and Engels believed about the relationship of the state and the workers should have towards the state before what occurred in France in 1848 to 51. Their experience, while that was very fresh and recent in their minds, you know, this is a, the work known as the, uh, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. And, now, and then the third section being, after that had kind of gone by and had, had time to, you know, digest and process what had occurred, but their conclusions about the state after the fact and how it ties into worker revolution. Lenin quotes directly from the poverty of philosophy. You know, the, the, and now here I'm going to quote at length. The working class in the course of development will substitute for the old bourgeois society an association which will preclude classes and their antagonism, and there will be no more political power groups, since the political power is precisely the official expression of class antagonism in bourgeois society. End of the quote. Now, this is a, you know, what Lenin says is a general exposition of the idea of the state disappearing after the abolition of classes. You know, this is this, this claim that is made by Marx is actually contrasted just a few months later in the work of the Communist Manifesto. And, you know, there's, a, there's some selected quote Lenin grabs directly from the manifesto, you know, and I'll read them at length as well. You know, first is, in depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we trace the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Second quote, we have seen above that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of the ruling class to win the battle of democracy. And now the last quote, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state. In other words, of the proletariat organized as the ruling class and to increase the total productive forces as rapid and rapidly as possible. Now, from here, we can see one of the most important Marxist ideas of the state. A new state just dropped, one could say. Dare I say the final state? The concept is known as the dictatorship of the proletariat. Cool short way to say that, Dick Prol. Just Dick, throwing it out there. Yeah, we, you know, for 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 all of you lovely people listening at home, if you, if you just mentioned Dick Prol, people will know exactly what you're talking about. Yep, yep, yep. Someday, someday, maybe because I used to do songs on the Antifada, but like we stopped doing that when we got I don't know more serious or something. I don't fucking know. Maybe I'll bring it back because I thought of a really good version where I go. I love Dick Prol. To put another boss in the gulag, baby. <laughs> catchy, right? It is definitely catchy, Jamie. Thanks. Anyway, um, go on. <laughs> and you know, the dictation of the proletariat, another word, Dick Prol, uh, can be defined from Marx and Engels' own words the state or the proletariat organized as the ruling class. Now, Lenin points out how this definition of the state is never explained in the propaganda of the social democratic parties of his time. Not, and not only is it never explained, it is ignored entirely because such a conception of the state is fundamentally irreconcilable with reformist politics. Mm -hmm. Now, Jamie, what do you think this might be the case? Well, you know, then, so the SOC Dems, they're like, we just need to like win elections, right? right. And we need to take control of the bourgeois state as it currently exists. Sure. And 
that's how we'll make the good policies that, you know, keeps everybody happy or whatever. Um, whereas if you use the Marxist definition, the Marxist understanding of it is basically every part of the bourgeois state needs to be smashed and replaced by a worker state and not just any worker state. All right. A worker state that is constantly deepening democracy with the goal of withering away and leaving us with something I like to call full communism, full communism, full communism, motherfuckers. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, and I think it's a good way of putting it, Jamie. And to be clear for people who are listening, who might be kind of surprised by that way of phrasing or thinking of considering as a state, I think a good way of considering it is the issues with the existing, uh, and we'll go into it with this text, uh, the reason why we believe that reformism, although can be a very useful instrument to gain goods and concessions for the working class and can uplift people in a very real way, it will never ever truly resolve the fundamental contradiction in society, meaning that there is a large class of people that are at the behest of a small class of people to do whatever they wish, whatever that minority wants them to do. And if we remember, like, you know, even recent history, and if, if for those of us who are from the United States, we will know that we may win certain things, certain policies, a good example is abortion in this country, that can easily be rolled back. And so a fundamental element that needs to be considered is how is it that those, you know, Rights cannot be rights if they can just be taken away to, you know, to kind of paraphrase something that, you know, George Carlin, the comedian once said, is like, you know, these are just privileges. Mm-hmm. You know, these are not, these are not rights. And so po- point being is like, we must have this kind of consideration of how the state operates for us to truly un- uh, consider, you know, to, to go back to what, you know, something was said in the manifesto, to trace the more or less veiled civil war, because it's, because the class war is real, whether or not you choose to believe it's there or not. That's very true. I mean, I think another obvious reason why the social Democrats and the libs and even the Kautskyites don't want to con- don't don't want to conceive. They don't want to face like the complete critique that Marx had of the state is because at a certain point in time, you have to have a revolution and not a political revolution, no. a social revolution. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. I mean, partly with good reason, right? Because it's going to be violent and it's going to be scary. And people who are comfortable say, I don't know, sitting Congress people or whoever, um, they're, they're doing fine right now. <laughs> and it's actually going to interfere with their careers in the current bourgeois state if they keep talking about how, okay, this is just the first step. Ultimately, we still have to overthrow it. But um, yeah, I mean, I wish I hope I wish they were right, but they're just not. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and to kind of go back to the text now, you know, it's additionally to consider the dictatorship, the, the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat, that this is an insult to what, you know, to, you know, Lenin is always so clever with his insulting of people is a to is an insult to the quote common opportunist prejudices and Philistine illusions about a so-called peaceful development of democracy. Unquote. The parliamentary road to socialism, folks. It's not fucking real. Yeah, I mean, like, the, 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 it's, it is important to mention that parliamentarianism as an, as an instrument and as a 
as a, as a strategy can be useful in tandem with everything else. But, but we must remember, as Jamie astutely pointed out, that is not where this is going to happen. There fundamentally needs to be a social revolution. There needs to be a revolutionary break, period. Even if all, you know, socialists are quite good at electing people into office, right? Even if that does happen, eventually something needs to, you know, something needs to break because mm -hmm. of the fact that the, the fundamental apparatus of the state can, is such in a way that it is in the way for a total transformation of society. Dead ass. And, you know, what, what, what these you know, social democratic parties of Lenin's time did share was that the proletariat needs a state. You know, big government is good. You know, the big, big, big state can take care of you. All these welfare programs, that's, that's good. And that, that was shared. However, all, you know, and all, and all, of, the, all of these opportunists, you know, these, these, are, these are words that Lenin uses, you know, all these opportunists, social chauvinists, and Kotskyites, Kotskyites being followers of Karl Kotsky, which we'll talk about later on, who was a predominant thinker of, his, of that time, um, re repeated this kind of idea of like the big state, you know, state, big government is good, and quote, assure us that this is what Marx taught, unquote. But, and Lenin was his classic dry wit remarks that, quote, they forget to add that in the first place, according to Marx, the proletariat needs only a state which is withering away, in other words, a state so constituted that it begins to wither away immediately and cannot but wither away. Well, that doesn't sound very big government-y. No. And secondly, the working people need a state, in other words, the proletariat organized as a ruling class. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, I mentioned, it's important to mention it was a subtle joke. He said they forgot to add. Yeah, I'm sure they just, it slipped their minds. It just, you know, it just happens, you know. Oops. So without the inclusion of these two essential properties, we just continue having the state as exists. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, as Jamie brightly pointed out, the first element of that is, you know, that state that just is as a fundamental property of it is that it begins to get rid of itself. That's not, you know, what you conceive of as a big state. Um, mm. That's not what the bourgeois state does. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't want to. And also it can't. No, it can't. And, you know, the workers need a state that in order that is run by them. That is of them and for them. Maybe a paraphrasing of what Lincoln said, but you know. Uh, yeah. And not just because they're allowed to vote, P.S. Right. Yeah. No, it's not just for, right, for, for voting. Um, also, in order to achieve a classless society, there needs to be a state that can wither away. Now, we're going to go into a you know, description about these two essential properties, the first of which we're going to start discussing. We can consider this first one about the state withering away as a positive or, dare I say, offensive, you'll see why, offensive reason why there needs to be a worker state. If we take a moment, let us remember what the Marxist conception of the state is. You know, and if you haven't listened to the first, chap first ep episode in the first chapter, I uh, would recommend you do so, or you know, also just read it. We'd recommend you do read it, but you don't have to read it. This is why we're here. But you know, if we, if we, given what we established in chapter one, Lenin through Marx reminds us that, quote, the state is a special organization of force. It is an organization of violence for the suppression of some class, unquote. The state is an instrument of class rule that has the only legitimate claim, supposed legitimate claim of violence in society. 
which is also called in many uh, in political science and mainstream or bourgeois uh, historic historical circles as the monopoly on violence of society. The reason it must have this violence uh, is to defend the existing social relations of that society. When the bourgeoisie have class rule in society, it, this means they must use the state to impose and maintain the social relations which perpetuate their place as the ruling class. You know, another a good example is like private property as a first class right under the rule of law in our society. So, you know, you can't just walk into somewhere and say, I'm just going to stay here now. You can't, you know, your, your, your claim to, to it be that being that no one is here, no one uses it. I'm just going to use this open office space or open residential apartment because it's here. And the capitalist says, no, you can't. I own it. That's the existing social relation in our society. So, you know, we, that's something that just is something that is maintained by the rule of law. And thus, the monopoly and violence is in order to maintain and, con- and continue doing that, i.e. through the police. So, if the proletariat becomes organized as the ruling class, then who must the proletariat suppress? Well, the former ruling class, the bourgeoisie. The reason they must do so is simply due to practicality. They must use the state as an instrument to prevent the bourgeoisie from becoming the ruling class once again. In other words, and this is to the point from before, as a secondary reason and the way we kind of can think about it, this can, can, be, this can be considered the negative or defensive reason why there needs to be a worker state. You need the state to construct socialism and then by, by extension communism and you need the state to defend the construction of a socialist society. You have your, your eye on the prize. You know, Jamie's mentioned this before. You know, keep your eye on the prize in terms of uh, you know, building communism. So that's why you need this instrument. But and it must eventually wither away because and, and we remember the definition of communism is a classless, stateless society. But you also need the state to defend the gains you've gotten in terms of constructing and on the path towards that society. Offensive, defensive, positive, negative reason for a worker state. Yeah, I mean, I've gone back and forth as to whether or not I agree with this, but maybe we can save that for the end because I want you guys to learn what Lennon thought before I go mixing it up with my own confused views. But I'm like, on even days, I agree with him. And on odd days, I'm like, no, global proletarian revolution can communize the world directly. We don't need a state, especially if the ruling class's money has no value anymore. But yeah. maybe that's for a for a communization episode. Yeah, we'll talk I, all about it. At the very least, it's a very compelling argument. You know, for at least when you stick when you stick to those two properties, it is a you know, it's it's hard to not consider it as what it is because it, it does offer a practical uh, reason for a state that's there. News you can use, folks. Yeah, uh, Lenin does make clear. And this is very important for all of you listening, that the only the proletariat can, can do this, do this being make a pass and push towards, move society towards socialism. Because it is, and this is a long quote by Lenin, only class that is constantly revolutionary, the only class that can unite all the working and exploited people in the struggle against the bourgeoisie in completely removing it. That's the end of the quote. Now, Jamie, why do you think the proletariat is the only class that is constantly revolutionary? Why, why do we think this might be the case? Um, I'm going to say because they do all the work 
And right now they are not in control of their labor and they do not reap the full benefits of their labor. But the important thing is they do all the work. Therefore, at a certain point in time, they're like, oh, hey, um, we can run this shit on our own. What, what do we need the boss for? You can fuck off. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right. It's like, you know, it's, it's you know, when in doubt, it's the economy, i.e. labor theory of value, stupid. Like, it's just, you know, just think back in terms of like, just, you know, if, if you, you're at your job and then one day your boss doesn't go to work, no one's there and then there's no replacement for the manager and everyone's just doing their job mm-hmm. as, just as if they were there. If you think about it, and I'm sure everyone's had this thought, it's like, wait a minute, why do we need this guy? Why do we need, why do we need this person telling us what to do? We're doing it fine. Spoiler alert, you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't need them. Street Fight did a really good video on this, actually, that you can check out. Um, it's on, uh, I believe, Means TV. They put it on YouTube. Yeah, be sure to check it out. Love those guys. Yeah, shout out to Street Fight. And another element that's important that, you know, capitalists love to use this argument because there is, some, there is an element of, like, truth to it, which is, you know, capitalism is, one of the, is the most innovative system that ever existed. Well, let's consider why, you know. There are so many different types of innovations, although those innovations have you know mixed success in terms of actually having useful value for society. But there are a lot of innovations under capitalism. But let's be clear here: you know, Steve Jobs wasn't wasn't there trying to you know code up the iPhone, wasn't designing the iPhone, wasn't like make make you know using using machinery to try to create the iPhone and fit everything all the stuff in there. No, those were all different kinds and different workers in, in different parts of the world mm-hmm. that did that. And they all had their own unique and in, in innovative contributions to creating that product. You know, same with, same it is with like a general motors were creating like, you know, all these different kind of vehicles. Same. It is with like, you know, in, at SpaceX with the creation of all these rockets, right? Elon Musk is not doing, is that creating these rockets? Wait, he's not. No. <laughs> oh shit. I gotta, I gotta re, I got to replan some things because I thought I was going to like marry him and, you know, replace Grimes as his baby. Anyway, no, he doesn't do it. He's uh, he's not a lone artistic genius like this. uh, This this capitalist mythology of captains of industry lead you to believe. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is a really important point, which kind of goes we're going back to the text, you know, like here Lenin does present a dialectic of as to how the state would be used by either the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. So, you know, considering the point of view from the, from the proletariat point of view, uh, sorry, the point of view of the bourgeoisie, the exploiting classes need political rule to maintain exploitation. In other words, in the selfish interest of an insignificant minority against the vast majority of all people. Ooh. Now, considering how the state could be used by the proletariat, the exploited classes need political rule in order to completely abolish all exploitation. In other words, in the interest of the vast majority of the people and against the insignificant minority consisting of the modern slave owners, the landowners, and capitalists. Essentially, this is a deliberation as to the extent and range of democracy in society. That's right. This is the real majority report, people. Listen up. <laughs> Folks. It's no, and you know, it's the proletariat is the majority of society, and not just in America. I'm talking about everywhere in the world, yeah. all people, right? The the vast majority of people, the 
true movers of society and of history. And, you know, you know, and after exploring the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat, Lenin proceeds to denounce the petty bourgeois Democrat, as he calls them, who prefer some naive vision of class collaborationism. Mm, Got to bring all classes into the conversation so we can have a capitalist society that works for everyone. Right. Wrong. Yeah, wrong. Wrong. Rather than class struggle, he calls them, quote, sham socialists who replace the class struggle by dreams of class harmony, mm-hmm. even pictured the socialist transformation in a dreamy fashion, mm-hmm. not as the overthrow of the rule of the exploiting class, but as the peaceful submission of the minority to the majority, which has become aware of its aims, unquote. There are many who would argue this Today, a hundred years later, so much changes, yet so much remains the same. You just have to persuade them. You just have to, like, you know, wear the right dress, the Met Ball, and all the rich people there will be like, you know what? They should tax the rich. Right. We give up. What's incredible, though, is that even that kind of position, while important, is still not sufficient because it's still within the boundaries of, as we just discussed earlier, bourgeois class society, because it only, the, what is the mechanism for which this is kind of being, you know, how the taxation is, is occurring through the bourgeois state. The state is still within the maintain, maintaining of bourgeois social relations. It is still is within the society that we're currently in. You can you cannot that is not simply sufficient. Although important, it is not sufficient. That is not socialism. Nope. Sorry, sorry to police uh, what socialism means. Sorry to insist that words mean things, but they do. Unfortunately, they do. And you know, Lenin does point out that this specific utopian thinking, which he considers as inseparable from the idea of the state being above classes rather than an instrument of class is precisely what has led to the betrayal of workers in the French revolutions of 1848, 1871, so-called socialist cabinets in Britain, France, Italy, and other countries at the turn of the century. To extend to nowadays, there are many examples of so-called socialist parties who have betrayed workers by their actions in government. Examples that come to mind are like Syriza, Labour under Blair. And again... I'm not necessarily making an idealist argument about this. Like, I don't think they necessarily did it because they had the wrong ideas in their heads. I think this is largely overdetermined by capitalism. Right. So whether they went into it as Syriza, the, Marxist. Syriza is a really good example which, of like, that. Yeah, Syriza was full of like legitimate communists and Marxists or whether they were just like smarmy opportunists from the beginning. Um, these kinds of tactics only lead to these kinds of results. Yeah, and you know, to kind of like you know, and we we'll talk about Syriza one day, but you know, Syriza being the the what became the ruling party in the government in Greece uh, during the financial crisis, they wanted to kind of totally uh, dis, uh, dismantle the oppression that the debt the uh, that the eurozone had imposed upon them, and guess what happened? International finance said, "No, you still need to pay," and they they're got like, "Owned." They got owned. They literally like, okay. <laughs> they just it, because they were not willing to go all the way. Yeah, you, you have to take it all the way. You have to because they they did every they literally followed every rule that they were offered. And guess what? That wasn't sufficient because they weren't because 
the, the bourgeois society is a class society. That sounds like we're repeating things over and over again, but let's consider what that means. It means that there's a hierarchy. There's certain people who are viewed above others. Who is at the top in, 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 the, in, the, in the world? The, the highest elite bourgeoisie of America. That's the elite of the elite, right? Mm-hmm. Then comes everyone else. Go off. So he bemo- no, and Lenin does bemoan how Marx fought his entire life against this exact kind of politics. And yet, this was, and still is, the predominant form of socialist politics. Quote-unquote socialist politics. Marx was very consistent in the theory of class struggle, even in how he spoke about the state. And, you know, Lenin returns us as to why it must be the proletariat alone which must overthrow bourgeois rule. As part of the typical operation of capitalism, quote, the bourgeoisie break up and disintegrate the peasantry and the petty bourgeois groups. They well together, unite, and organize the proletariat, unquote. In other words, by trying to exploit workers and extract surplus value, surplus value, which we'll talk about if you don't know what it means, we'll talk about it at some other point, but extract surplus value for themselves. The bourgeoisie unintentionally does the job of organizing the seeds of their own destruction. Previously, there were different kinds of classes that existed in feudalism. Under capitalism, there is only one class under the bourgeoisie, the proletariat. Essentially, the bourgeoisie constructs the proletariat as a class. So it's just a matter of the proletariat seizing power. There, you know, there were many classes in feudalism. Under capitalism, there are two classes. So the proletariat must then just make it easy such that, all right, well, if we get power, then we can just there be one class. And if everyone's in one class, then there's no class. That's right. You hear that, bourgeoisie? You could just give up and just be a guy, and that would be fine. Like, the only reason why we want to fight you now is because you are lording it over other people. You could just be a guy. You could literally just be a guy. Like the last emperor of China. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Look at the last emperor of China. Folks, you know, re-education gets a bad rap, but it works. You know, sometimes people got educated the wrong way the first time around, and they just need to be educated again. Yeah. It's like going to school again. Mm -hmm. Go back to, sending you back to school. Yeah. If we apply the theory of class struggle to what we know about the state, then we recognize how the proletariat must be the class who rules in the transitional period of constructing socialism. Therefore, the proletariat needs a state, and to quote Lenin, both to crush the resistance of the exploiters, because they're not going to want you to just do this, and to lead the enormous mass of the population, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie, semi-proletariats, in the work of organizing a socialist economy, unquote. This is why I said before, and what we were talking about before, um, as I mentioned before, was the positive and negative offensive and defensive reasons to have the state, you know, to lead people towards, you know, keep your eye on the prize. You know, we want to get towards socially. We want to end this kind of frustrating cycle of, oh, over and over, people fighting again and again of, and build communism. And, but also, you know, protect, protect the gains we've gone against people who are big mad about, you know, not being the, the people in charge. Yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking before um, what you're saying about why social democracy is not the answer. And like, look at what happened during the New Deal. Like they talked about this on Mark's Madness. uh, I was listening to an episode the other day. I talked about this constantly on the Majority Report. Like, why would you leave your enemy alive if your enemy still wants to hurt you? Like, 
look at what happened. They fucking Reagan that shit back a few decades later. And now we're in full neoliberal hell world. It's not good. It's not good at all. And, you know, I, I, I'm someone that, you know, my, my take is that, you know, social democracy can be used, it can be used for as like an interim period before we kind of just really go for it. But let's be clear here. Let's not forget, this is not the end. This is merely kind of like, oh, you know, like some health care, some like, you know, uh, you know, get some nice concessions, get better paying, paying jobs, increase unionization. That's great. But let's be clear. Here. I don't want to have a fucking job. Mm-mm. But and you know I don't think like that and it, and I want to and to be clear I do want to do work but I want to do labor I want to, I wanted to be contributing to society in a positive way but it's a matter of like having wage labor right mm-hmm. dead ass you know and once again Lenin uses dialectical reasoning to contrast what needs to be done with the workers' party compared to how the opportunists currently use such an organization first and this is like a long quote by educating the workers' party. Marxism educating the vanguard of the proletariat. Vanguard of the proletariat is the term that will be used a lot, but we will talk about it some other time in, on, on its own. It's like a really advanced section. Yeah. The people in the front, you know, <laughs> the leaders. Yeah, it's a, uh, but we'll, we'll have a, a separate episode on this concept alone. But we're going to quote again. By educating the workers' party, Marxism educating the vanguard of the proletariat, capable of assuming power and leading the whole people to socialism, of directing, and organizing the new system of being the teacher, the guide, the leader of all the working and exploited people in organizing their social life without the bourgeoisie and against the bourgeoisie. By contrast, the opportunism now prevailing trains the members of the Workers' Party to be representatives of the better-paid workers who lose touch with the masses, get along fairly well under capitalism, and sell their birthright for a massive pottage in other words, renounce their role as revolutionary leaders of the people against the bourgeoisie. End of the quote. Mm-mm, can't be doing that. The fuck is pottage even? I think it's just like some. It's just kind of like porridge, I guess. Uh oh! It is a, a thick soup or stew made by boiling vegetables, grains, and if available, meat or fish. The more you know, folks. More you know. So saying that people are just doing it for just soup. I mean, it does look pretty good in the photo I just pulled up, but uh, I think you know you're just—I think you're just hungry, Jamie. I am a little bit hungry, and after the revolution, there's gonna be way more pottage, and it's not just gonna be for the the PMCs, okay? It's gonna be for fucking everyone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Pottage for all. And more than just that, to be clear, more than just mm-hmm. pottage. Um, mm-hmm. Before we finish this section. We must remember Marxist theories of state, you know, of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The theory of the bourgeoisie, to be clear, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, is inseparable with, quote, the whole of his doctrine of the revolutionary role of the proletariat in history, unquote. The conclusion of such a revolutionary class is to revolutionize the entirety of society. You know, if you remember what we were talking about before, about why is it that the proletariat is the only, the most revolutionary class, it's because... By the way that it acts in society, it, it constantly is revolutionizing every part of society. So it, to take its role as a class to its logical conclusion, it must revolutionize all of society to represent the majority of society, which is itself. Crazy, folks. Mm-hmm. However, We are the 99%. We are the 99%. And more than just that. 
we are the 99.999%. Right. And however, an important question does arise when considering the use of the state as an instrument of proletarian class rule. This question being, is it conceivable that such an organization can be created without first abolishing, destroying the state machine created by the bourgeoisie for themselves? In other words, can we potentially force to vote our way to socialism, Jamie? Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> Excellent. I, I love it. That was all very informative. Thank you, Jorge. You're welcome. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think, I hate to beat a dead horse, but that really is the problem with this, this weird combination of like sort of ultra left intransigence with a uh, myopic focus on bourgeois politics, right? And electoral politics. Um, it just, it, it doesn't work, folks. You can't, no. you can't force the vote your way to socialism. It, it's going to require a whole lot of organizing. It's going to require a mass fucking movement. And it's going to require uh, a revolution. So maybe instead of trying to organize to make like four or five people in Congress vote the way you want them to, you should organize to do the thing. Do the thing. You got to do the thing. There's no way around it. Just do it. Easy. Just do the thing. You have nothing to lose but your change, folks. It's true. So, yeah. On to chapter two, part two. The revolution summed up. Lenin begins by saying, Marx sums up his conclusions from the revolution of 1848 to 1851 on the subject of the state we are concerned with in the following argument contained in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, which is, again, the work by Marx that he references throughout this. So then there's a really long quote from Marx. I will read some of it because I think it's important. So this is Lenin quoting Marx. But the revolution is thoroughgoing. It is still journeying through purgatory. It does its work methodically. By December 2nd, 1851, this is the day of Louis Bonaparte's coup d'etat. Is this the self-coup? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the self-coup. Fucking January 6th, guys. Yeah, Operation Rubicon. Remember Call from the previous episode. Oh, yeah. He crossed the fucking Rubicon. Um, it had completed one half of its preparatory work. It is now completing the other half. First, it perfected the parliamentary power in order to be able to overthrow it. Now that it has attained this, it is perfecting the executive power, reducing it to its purest expression, isolating it, setting it up against itself as the sole object in order to concentrate all its forces of destruction against it. And when it has done the second half of its preliminary work, Europe will leap from its seat and exultantly exclaim, well grubbed, old mole. Wow. So who's he talking about here? That's a good question. What's the antecedent for it? Oh, the revolution. All right. Is he talking about the proletarian revolution here or like the right wing revolution? Clarifying question. Clarifying question. I mean, it does appear that he's referring to in this specific quote about the bourgeois revolution at that moment in time. Right. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. So, yeah, uh, let's keep going. Uh, there's a little more there that we're going to talk about later. Finally, in its struggle against the revolution, there we go, the Parliamentary Republic. We're talking about the bourgeois rev, folks. Right, bourgeois revolution. The Parliamentary Republic found itself compelled to strengthen, along with repressive measures, the resources and centralization of governmental power. 
All revolutions perfected this machine instead of smashing it. Bourgeois revolutions. That's right. Because there haven't been any proletarian revolutions right up until the one that's happening when Lenin's writing. So uh, the parties that contended in turn for domination regarded the possession of this huge state edifice as the principal spoils of the victor. So see, these bourgeois revs, they're not trying to smash the state. They're trying to seize it. And in many ways, they are creating it and making it more advanced right. as they go. Yeah. And, you know, it. you will see why Jamie was so focused on for us to be specific as to what is Marx referring to in this quote. You'll see why. Yeah. Got to gotta make sure we know what we're talking about as we go, right? Mm-hmm. So Lenin says, in this remarkable argument, Marxism takes a tremendous step forward compared with the Communist Manifesto. In the latter, the question of the state is still treated in an extremely abstract manner, in the most general terms and expressions. In the above-quoted passage, the question is treated in a concrete manner, true. and the conclusion is extremely precise, precise, definite, practical, and palpable. All previous revolutions perfected the state machine, whereas it must be broken, comma, smashed. So, yeah, so he's talking about the bourgeois revolution, folks. Uh, a proletarian revolution has got to be different than the ones we came before right. than the ones that came before. Again, because they're not just looking to become the dominant class in society, but to abolish class itself. Now, I will say, I think we were talking about it last night, how there are some arguments in here that are a little bit like um, what Plato would use Socrates for, right? When he's like, oh, well, Socrates said this and this and this. But at a certain point in time, Plato's really just saying what he believes. Right. I think there might be a little bit of that going on here, because at least in the quotes that he uses from Marx, um, the proletarian revolution does not enter into it. He's only talking about the bourgeois revolution, but he's like taking that and using it to draw certain conclusions about what a proletarian revolution has to do differently. Yeah. And, you know, I think there is like a certain um, element of, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of the conclusions that Lenin arrives at are accurate. Um, or at least sound reasonable and make sense to me. But there is a bit of uh, a little bit of a stretch in terms of like what Marx actually said and what Marx was doing in terms of the method. And then what Lenin said, well, I mean, like Marx, Mar- Marx did it. And it's like, well, hold on. Like, did Marx say that or is that your position? You know, he was just he was making an argument from daddy. Yeah. And, you know, I think argumentum ad daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But shall, shall we go on? Yes. All right. So like, just keep in your mind that, you know, we know what he's doing here. And it's, you know what? Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's good, actually. So It's a good, it's a good rhetorical device. Because, because people cared what Marx thought is the thing. Like nowadays, maybe if you try to make an argument because, because Marx said so, people are like, so what? Who the fuck is that? But like at the time, I guess at the time in the place where he was writing, it was an effective like the Marx device. brothers. You mean? <laughs> yeah, because the Kautskyites don't forget the Kautskyites were using Marx also right. as a justification. Right. So given that fact, it makes sense that Lenin's like, no, no, no. Here's what he actually thought. Right. So he goes on. This conclusion is the chief and fundamental point in the Marxist theory of the state. And it is precisely this fundamental point which has been completely ignored by the dominant official social democratic parties and indeed distorted, as we shall see later, by the foremost theoretician of the Second International, Karl Kautsky. Oh, my God. He really has a hate on for that guy. huh? He, he just doesn't like him. He just really does not like Karl at all. And not, 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 not Marx, not Marx, Karl Kautsky. 
Sorry to feel bad for Kautsky. Just kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, we'll, we'll, we will read them. Um, you know, they're, they're, oh, we're going to fucking read them. All right. Yeah. We're going to read all of them. We're going to read all the people that made Marx and Lenin mad. It's true. Because you know what? We can't be one-sided about this. We have to consider, we consider all the facts and then use logic to reason out and then we'll probably see what the, what the deal is. We report, you decide. Yes. So, yeah, I'd be like, mm, stop, he's already dead. But uh, unfortunately, Kautsky's ideas are very much alive, yes. as we know. Yes, but Kautsky is dead, though. He, he, he died. He's in a grave. Yeah, and if you are listening to this podcast right now, you should definitely not go to Kautsky's grave and do something mean to it. We do not endorse that kind of um, owning from beyond owning, I guess not from because you'd be alive owning to beyond the grave. Just we do not endorse that very specific thing that we're mentioning right now. Yeah, like just like when some people I don't know who they were um, allegedly stole Trotsky's ashes and baked them into cookies. You should also not do that. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Um, so let's see what a, where where were we? So he says that um, the Communist Manifesto gives a general overview of this process by which we get to communism, which is to say um, the first phase of it, I'm doing your mom. The second phase of it, I'm doing your dad. No, just <laughs> kidding. That's just a meme I saw last night that like really cracked me up. It's so good. It's really good. You know, it's, it's good to have fun sometimes with Lenin. So no, what the process is, as you know, um, from listening to our Communist Manifesto episode, we got a worker state replaces the bourgeois state, vanquishes the class antagonisms and withers away. Uh, but it doesn't say how any of this is actually supposed to happen. Right. But then in 1852, Marx answers at least part of this kind of using the French Revolution of 1848 to 1851 as an example. He says here, as everywhere else, his theory is a summing up of experience illuminated by a profound philosophical conception of the world and a rich knowledge of history. Oh my God, get Aww. a fucking room. Aww. But also like, again, I think he's judging it a little bit because in the quotes he uses from Marx, he's not talking about a proletarian revolution. He's talking about a bourgeois revolution. And I think that could be a little confusing if people don't keep that in their minds. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, there, at the, near the end of like the, the long quote that Jamie had near the beginning of the section, there is a mention that Marx says of like, oh, you know, all exi previ previous existing bourgeois revolutions, you know, he doesn't say bourgeois because all the revolutions that occurred up to that point were bourgeois revolutions had merely, you know, just seized the state and didn't change anything about it. Rather, he says they should smash it. In other words, proletarian revolutions should smash it. But as Jamie kind of mentioned, you know, this is only a partial solution, right? It's a partial solution. And, you know, at least in the quote that, that Lenin had of Marx from the 18th Brumaire, it doesn't really get you to the point what, you know, the Lenin, Lenin's conception of the state being like one that withers away. Um, so Lenin goes on to say how Marx puts the problem of the state and what's going on here. He's just asking questions. Okay. Just asking questions. Folks. Just asking questions. He says the problem of the state is put specifically. How did the bourgeois state, the state machine necessary for the rule of the bourgeoisie, come into being historically? What changes did it undergo? What evolution did it perform in the course of bourgeois revolutions and in the face of the independent actions of the oppressed classes? What are the tasks of the proletariat in relation to this state machine? Just asking questions once again. Good questions. Big questions. Yep. So 
He traces some of these processes based on, again, the French Revolution of 1848 to 1851. Again, this is the bourgeois rev, not the cool one that led to the Paris Commune. But mm-hmm. don't worry, that's coming. Yeah, and we'll offer a great, juicy historical context for that as well. It's going to be so good. So, yeah, we got the fall of absolutism, which led to the bourgeois state, which is characterized by, Lenin says, a nice big bureaucracy and a standing army. Quote, Marx and Engels repeatedly show that the bourgeoisie are connected with these institutions by thousands of threads, thousands of them. Every worker's experience illustrates this connection in an extremely graphic and impressive manner. Graphic. Damn. That is why it so easily grasps and so firmly learns the doctrine which shows the inevitability of this connection, a doctrine which the petty bourgeois Democrats either ignorantly and flippantly deny or still more flippantly admit in general while forgetting to draw appropriate practical conclusions. So forgetful, those petty bourgeois. They really need to... Start taking some supplements or something. <laughs> they're, they're, it seems like they're being some real, you know, they're maybe have less soy in their diet. I don't know. Or more soy. I'm not sure. Yeah, who knows? Take some ginkgo biloba. Yeah. I just remember seeing the ads for that. You're probably too young. It's fine. <laughs> um, so here's a question. Do you think Lenin is idealizing the workers a little bit here? Like, what about all the working class people who fucking vote for Republicans or or think that the Democrats are going to save them? Like, do you think he's kind of trying to like to like fake it till he makes it or like hope the workers will rise to the occasion if he like gives them all these compliments? Yeah, I think this is um, there's a little bit of an idealization of of workers in general going on here, but, you know, to to be fair to Lenin, this is, I think, something that manifests in, you know, a lot of socialists, not just in throughout history, but also now, that there is a sense of like, oh, no, no, the, the workers will just kind of become aware of their position and just kind of get there. And, you know, to be fair, we, we also have this, we, I think we also fall into this trap ourselves, but it's important to be aware that this is something that is true, that, yeah. that you know, workers are the majority of society, but then not we should not necessarily be assuming that all workers would just kind of become aware to that fact spontaneously i mean i think i think there's like some truth to it and there's some wishful thinking to it yes like we can all think of examples and you know especially in lenin's time where the action in the streets and what the workers are doing actually went beyond what the so-called vanguard of the party like lenin himself was ready or thought thought was going on. Um, I think we could see examples from the George Floyd uprising yep. of last summer where, you know, the workers, the workers themselves, the proletarians, and, you know, this was a proletarian movement, don't get it twisted, mm-hmm. um, were willing to go beyond what self-appointed leaders might have thought was possible. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, he goes on, quote, the bureaucracy and the standing army are a parasite on the body of bourgeois society, a parasite created by the internal antagonisms which rend that society, That's but right. a parasite which chokes all its vital pores. So, you know, he says the Kautskyites only think that anarchists, they think that only anarchists believe this, but this is a distortion of Marxism once again. Yep. And it's, uh, it's plain to see 
Like, how how does this play out? The bureaucracy and the standing army, aren't they supposed to uphold bourgeois society? And yet, and yet, uh, they're fucking it up. I mean, a more recent example I can think of is like all the crimes committed by cops. Like, 100%. Like in our, in our worst responders episode on 9-11, oh, the cops are supposed to be protecting private property. Oh, but they stole a bunch of shit. What's up with that? Yeah. What is up with that? <laughs> what indeed? So let's see. I'm going to summarize what comes after this. So he's saying uh, the bureaucracy and the standing army, they get developed and strengthened by bourgeois revolutions, right? We have to have these special bodies of armed men in order to uphold the bourgeois state. Yep. Um, the petty bourgeoisie side with the big bourgeoisie and are subordinated to them through this apparatus because they are bootlickers. Uh, quote, and he's talking about the apparatus, uh, quote, which provides the upper sections of the peasants, small artisans, tradesmen, and the like with comparatively comfortable, quiet, and respectable jobs, raising the holders above the people. You know, a big example of the time, Russia after the revolution of February 1917. So again, we're not talking about the proletarian revolution yet, all right? This is not, this is the one that overthrew the monarchy and replaced it with the provisional government, which could be seen as a bourgeois revolution. Yeah. Not the cool one that happened later in November, but is known for some fucked up reason as the October Revolution, which put the Bolsheviks in charge. Right. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Don't worry, folks. So we're we'll, definitely we'll, going to get to we that. We will definitely 100% cover it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a bunch of different groups of people. You The... It's not really important to understand who they are right now, only that they're not the Bolsheviks. They're all the people to the right of the Bolsheviks. So the cadets, the Mensheviks, the SRs, uh, they, he says, they simply took over uh, the Black Hundreds, which is the monarchist militias, you know, the bootlickers. They're the Proud Boys folks, basically. They're just Pro- like a right wing militia in support of the czars. Czar being like, you know, the, the emperors and kings of, uh, of Russia at the time. Yeah. Again, they're the, they're the bad kind of ultras. Yep. So he says they just took over all the black hundreds, former posts in a very opportunistic way. And I quote the six months between February 27th and August 27th, 1917 can be summed up objectively summed up beyond all dispute wow. as follows reforms shelved distribution of official jobs accomplished and mistakes in the distribution corrected by a few redistributions. Um, and this goes without saying, but they made no real effort to end the war either. Boo. Yeah. So what goes on now? The oppressed classes, oh, they catch on that what these people are doing is bullshit. Bullshit. The state responds with further repression. Remember the June Days uprising got put down by the ruling liberal government, the original shit libs. Mm-hmm. And, you know... I guess he's afraid the same thing could happen in Russia if the proletarians don't act. Yeah, absolutely. So he says, quote, this course of events compels the revolution to concentrate all its forces of destruction against the state power and to set itself the aim not of improving the state machine, but of smashing and destroying it. Once again, we got to smash the state, folks. Yeah, we do. It's not just the anarchists who believe that. No, it, it, is, it is. this is, I think, something that gets really glossed over a lot because of the fact that people assume that because you have an opposition to the state, you automatically are an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Something I've joked about before is that, you know, I am a vicious, you know, 100% hardline anarchist when it comes to the state with the society that I'm in. 
but if, we, if the workers have their own state, I'll be the hardest hardliner and lover of that state. Until it withers away. Of course. Until it's withering time, which, you know, people might disagree on when that time is, but, uh, or if it's even possible. Well, it should wither away as it, as it exists. It, it slowly, slowly withers away as an aspect of existing. Let's hope. Let's hope. I like the idea. I'm not 100% for it. I'm not 100% against it. That's part of why I'm doing this podcast, though. Because maybe then I'll, you know, I'll finally pick a lane. I'll declare my major, declare my tendency. <laughs> That'll be the end. That'll be the last episode. Yeah, you'd be like, all right, I, I, I've declared what I am. Yeah, but until then, you know, it's important to hear from both more orthodox Marxist-Leninists as well as our galaxy brain communization friends. Yeah. All sides. Yeah, you heard it here first. Jamie Peck is a free agent. It's just a matter of finding the right package for her to sign a deal with the right team. <laughs> Wow. I mean, I wasn't going to put it that way, but sure, sure. Make me an offer. <laughs> so then he's like, hmm, but should we even be extrapolating a general theory from what happened in France? Like, it's fucking France. Like, who cares right. about them? Uh -huh. um, but then he's like, actually, yes. Here's a quote from Engels about how in France, the historical class struggles were fought out to a finish. And we don't need to read it because it's basically what it that, says. That is pretty much what it says. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then he gives examples of similar struggles playing out in other countries, though to a less complete degree, concluding, quote, there is not the slightest doubt that these features are common to the whole of the modern evolution of all capitalist states in general. You hear that, folks? He's doing theory. Yeah, I think it's an interesting claim that perhaps might have been more accurate during the period of time he wrote it in. But I do think that to suggest that that is the nature of contemporary society i think is flawed and i, I don't I, and i'm not making something about lenin but rather people who would read this and say oh well this is directly applicable to now mm -hmm. yeah as a, as a to be clear directly applicable as a cookie cutter oh this happened then we do the exact same thing that's not quite what i think we sh you should you should be getting out of it but also nor would i say lenin would think that's what you should be getting out of it yeah sure sure we can square that circle. I think it's more applicable than not, but it's sure. not as applicable perhaps as some of the hardline Leninists think it is. Fair? I mean, I think that it is applicable. It it depends on who you're asking, right? You know, there's always going to be people who are dogmatic and those who are not. So I think it depends on sure. like what it is. Sure. We can I I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it right now if we didn't think that we could get some value out of this. 100% this the present day movement. So um, this section is almost done. Um, then he name checks imperialism. He says, imperialism, the era of bank capital, the era of gigantic capitalist monopolies, of the development of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism, has clearly shown an unprecedented growth in its bureaucratic and military apparatus in connection with the intensification of repressive measures against the proletariat in both the monarchical and in the freest Republican countries. So again, Boom. you might think you're freer under uh, Napoleon III than you were under Napoleon I, but that's not true. Also, um, fucking World War I has been going on, yep. and if that's not evidence that these are, this is not a, not a sufficiently liberatory mode for society to be in, I don't know what is. I mean, what do you mean? Like, I think, I think we're fighting an honest, true war about the guy that killed the other guy, but the guy that killed the other guy. Oh my God. Fucking Franz Ferdinand. Great band though. Great band. Um, 
<laughs> so we go on. World history is now undoubtedly leading on an incomparably larger scale than in 1852 to the concentration of all the forces of the proletarian revolution on the destruction of the state machine. What the proletariat will put in its place is suggested by the highly instructive material furnished by the Paris Commune. Hmm, to be continued. To be continued, Jamie. I mean, I'll buy that for a dollar, won't you? Yeah. Sounds good. It sounds good. It's, it sounds really interesting. That being said, you know, and the reason why it ends in this way, but there is still one more section. Um, it's important to mention, and this other section, part three, known as the title is The Presentation of the Question by Marx in 1852. The reason it ended that way in section two is because that was the original ending for chapter two, same revolution. Yeah, fun fact. Yeah. But yeah, because that is like a really good way to end it. Like, why are you? It's like it's like you say goodbye to someone and then you realize you're both walking in the same direction and you're like, OK, now this is awkward and I want to die. Right. But, you know, it. I think the reason why he did this and it's important to note that, you know, this section that we're about to talk about, um, section three, was not included in the first edition of State Revolution, which, you know, State Revolution was actually not published until 1918 after the October Revolution. The more you know. Yeah. So what this section we're about to talk about actually appeared in the second edition, which appeared in 1919. Okay. This is important. One, kind of what we're just talking about in terms of like, you know, why are you spoiling this nice place that you're ending? You know, it's like a way good place to end. Why are you spoiling it? Well, now you know why. But also, there's a reference in this section to a work that was published after the first edition of State and Revolution was written. So you're going to be like, if you're reading it and, you're, and we're telling you about something that came out in 1918, you're going to be like, what? What are you talking? You see the future? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, Lenin was a powerful person, but, you know, you cannot, it wasn't clairvoyant. So, you know, this is, this is what's going on here. So this, this is a short section, you know, a little bit more to go, but just not too much. So don't, 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 if you're still listening to this, don't, don't worry, don't worry. We're almost about to finish. The purpose of this section is essentially meant to present what Marx arrived at, given their experience of the revolution of 1848 to 51, kind of what I said before, you know, poverty philosophy and um, the Communist Manifesto was before what happened in 1848 to 51, 18th Brumaire, when that freshly occurred. And then after that time has gone by, what they've concluded. So the reason it is entitled this, the presentation of the question by Marx in 1852. No one presents a question like Marx, I gotta say. It's true. And it's a consideration of the question at the heart of Marxist theory, which is the existence of class struggle in history. If the solution to this question of recurring class struggle in history is a classless society, in other words, communism, then how do we arrive at this? This is the start of where Marx begins to offer a strategy, a potential resolution of this question. Dare I say, and folks, I hope you're ready for this, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Dick Prol coming at you right now. It's true. And, you know, Lenin begins the section by pointing to some published extracts from a letter Marx wrote to a one Joseph Wiedemeyer on March 5th, 1852. Now, before we kind of go, before I go into what Marx wrote to Wiedemeyer, I actually do want to make a side note, kind of a shout out, a little, little note about this Joseph Wiedemeyer, kind of make, make a mention about this. He was an interesting figure in his own right. He was a military officer in Prussia who got involved with the right crowd. You know, he was a follower of Marx and Engels and was a member of the League of Communists, which who were, who Marx and Engels were also part of. The 18th Brumaire was actually published in a monthly magazine right here in New York City. That, and this, this magazine was established by him. 
He was a participant in the 1848 revolutions, which is what actually led him to be migrated in the, to the United States. You know, you can't be part of a revolution that failed and expect, expect not to be deported. Um, mm. And he was, but funny enough, he was also a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army during the Civil War. Wow. Really, really interesting figure who probably should have a book written about him or even a, mo- or even a movie, honestly. I'd watch that. Yeah. The last thing he did at the end of his life was be a county auditor in St. Louis to make harsher tax laws and collect taxation from people who used the Civil War to get rich. And he was like in his <laughs> 40s when he died. Damn. Really? Shout out to Weidemeyer. Yeah. So king. Shout out to him. That's king shit. Yep. Yep. Anyway. Oh, and before I forget. And yet the only thing that he's remembered for now is that Marx wrote him a letter. Well, <laughs> important note that he actually coined the dictatorship of the proletariat as oh, a freight. Oh, fuck. He was, he was, so he, so he had his influence in history. That's sort of like my greatest aspiration is like, I don't need to be Marx. Okay. I just need to be like Marx's friend who helped him get published and came up with a good word for what he was trying to say. Like Hope. that, that would be all I could possibly ask for. That would be great. Don't we all wish we could do that folks? Yeah. What more can someone ask? Anyway, here's the extract. And now as to myself, no credit is due to me for discovering the existence of classes in modern society or the struggle between them. Yeah, we know, Marx. We know. <laughs> Long before me, bourgeois historians had described the historical development of this class struggle and bourgeois economists, the econ- economic anatomy of classes. What I did was new was to prove, and there's three things. One, that the existence of classes is only bound up with the particular historical development of production. Two, that the class struggle necessarily leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Three, that this dictatorship itself only constitutes the transition to the abolition of all classes and to a classless society. Oh, you mean it's not going to be like in those weird comics that that Never Socialism guy did of me, where like me and AOC and like, some lady streamers that I don't know are just like ruling over the bourgeoisie and there are slaves now. Oh my God. That was, that's a there thing. Are fucking foot slaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so weird, but very illustrative. I think of what we're not trying to do. Like he thinks that's the world that socialists want. I guess. I think it might just be the world that he wants actually. It, it's, it def- there's definitely some weird psychosexual stuff happening there. But That's not what we're trying to do. No, not at all. Anyway, <laughs> Mar- Marx, you know, this quote is really interesting, you know, apart from being quite humble, I would say, very humble quote, I would say. Um, <laughs> but basically, Marx says he did not discover class struggle, but he did find how class struggle persisted in history. Materially. Yeah, there are contours with how classes develop in their specific historical eras. And to be fair to him, you know, apart from being, you know, quite you know, quite proud of what he did. This is a, this is a unique discovery by him. No one. I really... mean, I would be proud of it too. If I made that discovery, so like, damn, TBH. like, damn, I did that shit. <laughs> yeah. Additionally, you know, he, this, is, this is a unique discovery by him. Additionally, he concluded that class struggle under capitalism inevitably leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat due to a need to resolve Resolve class contradictions in society. For real, though. For real, Resolve though. them for real this time. Yeah. Not just some fucking technocrats managing these contradictions to keep them from spilling over, but actually resolve them. It's true. It's true. We're, we're, we're taking it home. We're taking it home, folks. 
Finally, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat is the transition needed to abolish all classes and end class struggle in history. He expresses how he is different from previous thinkers and thinkers of his time and, and his theory of the state being different as well. He did not have imposter syndrome. No, he did not. We that, could all learn something from him. He was really like, no, no, I'm no, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like a big deal. Now, Lenin is extremely careful here by rebuking what many people claim is at the core of Marxist theory, the theory of class struggle. Lenin is being really precise by saying that this is not correct. And in fact, by believing it's true, being what you believe being true being that the fundamental part of Marxism is that class struggle is an element of history, that that's the most fundamental part, believing this is true would only inevitably lead to co-optation by opportunists. That's right. All the people who are like, you need to do class struggle by voting. <laughs> As Marx said, he did not discover class struggle. He, we saw in this, this letter. So, like, you know, the, the, bourgeois, like, you know, the bourgeoisie has no real issue with class struggle being recognized as an element of society. I mean, Warren fucking Buffett in 2006 mentioned class warfare in the New York Times in an interview. So clearly you don't have an issue with it being known as a fact. Yeah. Really what makes someone a Marxist is not this acknowledgement of class struggle. Rather, and this is a quote from Lenin, and this is really important, only he is a Marxist who extends the recognition of the class struggle to the recognition of the dictatorship of the proletariat. So you must follow this theory of class struggle that Marx and other people have laid out that you recognize it and take that to the logical conclusion. This is what makes you a Marxist according to Lenin. You must know in order to, you know, you must, to end this dance of class society, you know, bourgeoisie takes over, now proletariat takes over, some concessions happen, some people win, goes back and forth. We must get to this last act, so, so, so to speak, the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's right. In mathematics, and you know, sorry to use this analogy, but I think is quite, I think is is quite illustrative of what's going on here. All right, I'll <laughs> stay with you, but math is not my best subject. It's going to be quick. Don't worry, Jamie. <laughs> People speak about resolving a kind of particular case of a problem and a general case of a problem. So basically, you can solve whether the math you've done is done in such in such and such way for that singular problem. However. This solution cannot get you anywhere closer to solving it for all versions of the problem. You can say something is like, you know, X is 12, Y is 14, whatever. It doesn't matter if you did. Oh, yeah, you did for that, but now prove it for everything. This is the same thing with co-optation in many ways. The opportunist and the bourgeoisie will concede certain demands of the specific problem. You know, oh, you want higher wages? Let's, okay, fine. We'll give you bigger wages. Oh, you want more housing? Okay, sure, sure, sure. Or, or better access to housing. Oh, education? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you like, you know, two years of college, you know, co community college, that'll be free. You if know. you start a business in an underprivileged neighborhood. For three years. <laughs> for three years. Yeah. Yes. But, but, and here it is, folks, they will never allow for the resolution of the general problem in society, which is the existence of class in society. Reformism can feed you for a day. Revolution can feed you for a lifetime. Oh, that is so fucking true. And I love your math analogy. I'm sorry I doubted you. Thank you, Jamie. Hope everyone that's listening appreciated it too. 
This is why Lenin said this specific. They said this specifically. "Quote is the touchstone on which the real understanding and recognition of Marxism should be tested." Unquote. If you don't believe this, then you're not a Marxist. Period. Damn. Well, that's interesting because a lot of people have always called themselves Marxists who did not believe this necessarily. So them's really fighting words for all the Kautskyites out there. Funny enough, this is also why Lenin is not surprised when this specific question of what is to be done about class struggle, quote, not only all the opportunists and reformists, but all the Kautskyite people who facilitate between reformism and Marxism. <coughs> Bread and roses. <laughs> Jacobin proved to be miserable Philistines and petty bourgeois Democrats repudiating the dictatorship of the proletariat. Unquote. There is no interest in actually transforming all of society at its most fundamental level. Mm, there goes our chance at a Jacobin sponsorship. Lenin makes a reference to Karl Kotsky, who he calls an ex-Marxist and the principal spokesman of the opportunism of his day. And his pamphlet on the dictatorship of the proletariat, where he distorts what Marx meant by this and essentially renunciates by their deeds, despite acknowledging in words. Lenin claims the pamphlet is a great example of, quote, Marx's characterization of the bourgeois position quoted above, for does opportunism limit recognition of the class struggle to the sphere of bourgeois relations? Within this sphere, within its framework, not a single educated liberal will refuse to recognize the class struggle in principle. We see you. We hear you. You're valid. It's it's you know this is a safe space. You can we we it, we can talk about it. You're someone with an identity. It's I all respect that, that identity. We respect it. We're wearing dashikis and we're bowing. Wakanda forever. <laughs> but. You know, it's important to mention, you know, kind of being, being serious, you know, it's important to mention that, you know, the opportunities do not extend class struggle to, you know, a cardinal point that Lenin says, you know, or keeping with the math analogy, an inflection point. The you rupture. Know. Right, exactly. You know, of the period of transition from capitalism to communism, the dictatorship of the proletariat, of the overthrow and the complete abolition of the bourgeoisie. Lenin does not mince words about this period being particularly dangerous and needing to entirely reimagine what democracy looks like and what, what authority looks like. A full quote here, it's a, and bear with me, quote, in reality, this period inevitably is a period of an unprecedented, violent class struggle in unprecedentedly acute forms. And consequently, during this period, the state must inevitably be a state that is democratic in a new way for the proletariat and propertyless in general and dictatorial in a new way against the bourgeoisie, unquote. Lenin concludes the chapter by driving home the point that this transitional period, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictprol, must occur not just for every class in general, not just for the proletariat. Every in, class society in general. Yep, not, yep, exactly. And for every class society in general. And, and, but, you know, it, and, not, and also not just for the proletariat which had overthrown the bourgeoisie, but it must be done for the entirety from the transition of capitalism to communism. Essentially, Lenin kind of alludes to this, but you know, now we're kind of extrapolating from it. We must have a global dictatorship of the proletariat while we transition to communism, because so long as capitalism is an aspect on this earth, we cannot have a classless society. Lenin acknowledges the transition from capitalism to communism will probably take up many different forms in many different societies, but they are all 
different manifestations of the same phenomenon, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Boom. That's it. That's it, guys. Yeah, what do you end, think? That's the end of the chapter. To be continued. To, Ooh. Yeah, to be continued. Some good shit. Not to, to use one of my lesser known catchphrases. That's some good shit. To use one of my greater known catchphrases. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So like, yeah, I think I don't necessarily agree 100% with everything Lenin's saying about how we get communism, but it's, I, find, I find it very persuasive. And, you know, maybe it was contradicted by some of the things he did later, um, which maybe we'll get into when we have our little bonus panel with some guests, but... Uh, maybe it wasn't. Who knows? You'll decide. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But it's a really... Like, it's a very persuasive plan, and it's a very persuasive kind of writing, um, even if there are some parts of it where I'm like, well, he's, you're saying that it's science, but, like, how could you possibly know this shit about the future? But, like, in the moment, I believe him. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I think he's making a very strong claim that it's the, the strongness of the claim and also the, the rhetoric that he uses it's quite staying. It stays with you. It demonstrates a certain approach to developing and constructing socialism. I think there is, given how closely he read Marx, and also the, using the same methodology that Marx used, I think there is something to be said about, you know, people do make these claims, which I think are not fair, but of like Lenin not being a Marxist. I think it is clear that he was a Marxist. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it, we must analyze him, read him, which is why we're reading him now, but also be influenced by him. Yeah, for sure. It's like, what are your influences, man? Yeah. Oh, man, I got a little, a little Marx, a little Lenin, a little this, a little that. Yeah. Maybe a pinch of Proudhon. And like, okay, here's a note, too. Like, I feel like maybe in this age of where everyone's like just trying to do a strong identity slash personal brand. Yeah. People become a little reductive in terms of, oh, I'm an anarchist and that means this. Oh, I'm an ML and that means this. Oh, you're talking about Lenin? That must mean you're a fucking tanky. Like Lenin was inspired by the writings of anarchists and left comms as well. It's like true. they were all like, yeah, sometimes they got in a fight, but they were all talking to each other and I feel like we should still be doing that. Lenin was inspired by Kotsky. This person, he just denounces so many fucking times in this work, <laughs> and yet he it was influenced by him, and partially that's why he felt so strongly in disliking him, because he felt that he changed his mind in a way. But also, I think part of it is Walt Lenin just developed his own kind of thinking that led him to kind of like disagree strongly with this person that had a major influence in his thought. Yeah. So we're here for the discourse. We're here for the dialogue, folks. And if I refuse to declare a tendency, you know, yet, we're waiting for the end of the podcast, obviously. That's true. Um, it's because a lot of these things are still live questions that haven't been answered yet. And also, like, a lot of these tendencies, I think we, we I really do believe we need a new synthesis. And I don't know what the name is for that yet. But maybe we can figure it out. Together. Yeah, it's called Xi Jinping Thought. Anyway. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a funny running joke. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And oh, if you like what you hear, and I think you do, if you've made it this far to the end of the episode, you have a few bucks to spare. 
Uh, you can go to fans.fm slash everybody loves communism and throw us some money. That'd be super nice. Yeah. And coming soon, if you are finding it more convenient to be on Patreon, there will be a Patreon link coming up soon as well. But we are going to charge a little more because Patreon takes a bunch of your money. Yeah. But if you really like Patreon, you're willing to pay like an extra dollar or whatever, you know, I can't tell you how to live your life. It's true. If, if we find it more convenient for whatever reason, we will we will make sure that's available also on Patreon. But that will be coming soon. So, but be okay. sure to support the show. Yeah. And we are going to have some bonus content for our patrons coming soon. There's been one episode so far, but there's going to be a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Yep. And until next time, do the reading. Do the reading. Sitting in the laboratory. Conducting experiments. Analyzing data. <laughs>